Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we talk to founders, investors, and entrepreneurs shaping and impacting the startup ecosystem of Asia. We have great conversations, relevant dialogues, we share stories and discuss the challenges and problems entrepreneurs are solving, hoping to contribute back positively to the ecosystem, and hopefully sometimes we're entertaining too. For this week's episode, it features content from a talk I did with the Singapore Tourism Board Accelerator. The Accelerator is aimed at making Singapore the main destination for Southeast Asia for startups to headquarter in. They recently finished their second cohort and kicked off their third cohort. Kevin Hung, our guest from episode one, helped connect me to Katrine Miller, who works with the co-working space Found8 based in Singapore. She's in charge of running the Accelerator program on behalf of the STB, Singapore Tourism Board, as I understand it. And she graciously asked me to share some learnings they had from the founders we spoke to thus far on the EOA platform for the benefit of their cohort three founders. So this episode will recap on a high level some of the direct learnings we had from the first 11 guests we interviewed, some interpretations, and some of my own advice on what was discussed from the founders. Kevin Chalk, co-founder and managing partner of Hotel Data Cloud, a content distribution platform for hotels based in Dubai, was kind enough to moderate the session as he is involved with the program too. We had some interesting conversation as he used to be involved with a VC that invested in early rocket internet companies that actually made good money. There are some Q&A throughout the episode, but mainly the heavier discussion is focused towards the end, so feel free to skip ahead if you don't care too much about the lessons and learning recaps. Also, this was recorded as a presentation format on Zoom, so you can go to our YouTube to follow along as well, and I'll probably post up the presentation on our website, entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast for access as well. Let's dive right in. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, maybe actually before we move forward, I could talk about more about myself. So I started back in 2012 uh, with Rocket Internet, so I was responsible for launching Zalora uh, in three markets, Malaysia, Taiwan, Vietnam. And then after about two years or so, I jumped into the rideshare craze. So I worked with a company called Easy Taxi, which at one point was the largest rideshare company in the world. Uh, but no one knows about it because we lost to Uber and Grab. And then I did a bunch of smaller startups, then eventually got into Entrepreneurs of Asia. So uh, let's just dive right into the first lessons. So the first episode was my good friend, Kevin Hung. So he's actually a mentor uh, he was a mentor for cohort two for the Singapore Tourism Accelerator and also for cohort three. Uh, currently, he's director of Anthola, which actually, interestingly enough, is a family business. Uh, but before that, he got his career started scaling uh, Airbnb uh, for Asia, right? So he started in Malaysia and worked around the region. Uh, he got the chance to meet Brian Chesky, so there's some good learnings there. And then after his stint with Airbnb, his, a lot of his ex-colleagues got together and formed uh, a venture builder called Hype. So from there, you know, he was responsible for scaling other startups in the region and also helping them get from, you know, series A to series B, et cetera. So for the first lesson, you know, it's scale your organization by design. Um, this is something that's really taken directly from Kevin's experience at Airbnb. So you have to be extremely purposeful when you think about how you want your company to be, right? And, uh, it, and we were talking about in the first episode about, you know, Kevin was you know, arguing that he believes startups actually have this concept of a soul, right? You know, it's like a culmination of all the experiences of all the employees. And what Airbnb did really well was to codify them into values and missions in such a way that was easy, tr easily translatable to everyone. 
right? So, and I think the point is early on or when you're venture scaling, you know, and going really fast and growing a lot, you kind of have to really think about this and be very purposeful about how you want uh, your organization to look like. And I think that's why Airbnb is a very design-centric company. Uh, and part of their success, what Kevin was saying, was that you know they were able to do this really, really well. So the second learnings, you know, do things that don't scale. This directly comes from Brian Chesky. So uh, when he was first starting Airbnb, he basically got to a point where they were kind of stuck and they didn't really know what to do. So one of their mentors, Paul Graham said, uh, did you ever think about just picking up a phone and calling every single one of your customers and getting the feedback, right? And that's where he clicked. It's like, oh, I didn't think about doing that. Uh, you know, it's not really scalable, but, you know, to get those early learnings are very critical, right? So it was the same thing Kevin was talking about in the episode one, where, you know, when he was talk responsible for launching Malaysia, uh, Brian Chesky gave him the same advice, right? You know, early on, a lot of founders, especially in tech startups, right? It's very easily to be disconnected from the customer and to think that, you know, you have the answers, but, you know, the best thing you could do are processes that usually will not scale. So for example, um, the nice thing about Airbnb is they had a playbook, so it was a lot easier for Kevin, but he basically had to every single day call and meet all the, all the hosts uh, in Malaysia, which were in the hundreds, right? Which was not very scalable. You know, once you get to a thousand, once you get to a million people, you're not gonna be able to do that. But in the early days, it's very, very critical to kind of get those kind of learnings. So you know how to feed it back into the product and how to iterate going forward. So it's very counterintuitive, but you know, you essentially want to do things that don't scale early on. And then of course, the next learning would be that at a certain point, you know, if you have a very strong product market fit, uh, you want to let the product take over, right? So once you've built the product where you have a good understanding of the core value prop, then that's when you really want to think about how can you use technology? How could you design it in such a way that uh, you have a leverage effect so that you could actually start to scale with a lot less work? And I think this is like something that Airbnb figured out, right? So they first started in New York. They then, of course, figured out across all of America. And then they had a playbook to kind of go global. And, you know, at that point, when you have a playbook and you're going global, you know, that's when you really want the product to be really good. So really think hard about your own product if you're at that point to see how product is getting more of a leverage effect for your growth. Uh, and then the last lesson from... Alex, Kevin, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in with a question here. Um, sure. Working at Rocket Internet, um, I don't know how familiar the rest of you are with Rocket Internet. I've worked with them in the past um, on the VC side. Rocket Internet is extremely focused on execution. Yeah. In a company like that and with a culture like that, was there room to do things that don't scale? Did you have that free, <sighs> a, that that leeway? Did you have? Yeah. That's what a, was that, that like? Yeah. That's a very uh, interesting question. Um, I would definitely have to say that there are aspects of that. Yes. So like when my first job of launching Zalora Malaysia, um, well, I guess, I mean, you need to hire about maybe 300, 400 people in maybe one to three months. Um, so, I mean, a scalable thing would be like, you know, <clears throat> taking like a database uh, and, you know, you're dumping like uh, maybe uh, the same template over and over, uh, the, maybe just the same template and you're blasting it out to everyone to see if there's a funnel to, you know, see, was there any interest, right? So 
thinking like that. But the truth is like you have to call hundreds and hundreds of people every single day to kind of build that team really fast. Um, on the other sense, you know, it's because you have so much resources starting out, it's a very different kind of process and method, um, which actually, interestingly enough, you know, it might be more relevant to Southeast Asia. Um, if you're trying to get a big impact fast, you know, you need a lot more money than you think. If not, product market fit takes probably not one or two years like in other more mature markets, but could take five to six years. Right. So it's a very different kind of trajectory if you don't have that kind of resources. And I think that's kind of the innovation from Rocket. Uh, if you're not cynical, kind of the innovation from SoftBank, <laughs> I guess. Um, so I would have to say yes and no. You know, so like in some aspects, you are taking a proven business model and adapting it to the market, but everything's not going to fit. So there are sometimes you do have to do things that won't scale. Uh, but, you know, because we have so much resources, it's kind of sheer effort, sheer willpower, and you just, forcing things to fit to kind of get to a certain scale, which then, you know, it's not really doing things that are scalable. You're just throwing money at problems, mm. right? Right. Cool. So maybe also another question following on um, and and on your first point uh, with Rocket Internet, would you say those companies had a soul? That's maybe a bit more cynical, this question. Yeah, so that's exactly what uh, Kevin points out in the episode. He's like, uh, Rocket doesn't have a soul. Um, yeah, so <laughs> in, in that kind of sense, it's it's a soul. I mean, right? Like you could have evil people, and they have an evil soul, probably, right? But and I'm not saying Rocket's evil, but like they they were built for a certain purpose. They had a certain means to an end, and the type of people they hired and what they kind of did uh, achieved that goal, right? So you know, if you want to say that's right or wrong, that depends on how you feel. You know, whether uh, they create a net positive contribution to society. I think that in the regions and emerging markets that they were operating, I would have to say yes, right? Things were kicked off. Back then, no one was willing to spend more than 5 million USD on a company. They come in and spend half a billion, a few hundred million dollars, right? So um, they have a soul. It's a different kind of soul, I guess. It's not for everyone. It's definitely, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a very intense kind of culture. Uh, it's not in the same kind of sense of Airbnb, where it's about community-driven, uh, positive value, uh, you know, very purposeful design. Um, so in that kind of sense, yeah, maybe you could say in that sense, they didn't have that kind of soul. They don't care about you. Uh, but, you know, in a, in a different kind of sense, they did what they set out to achieve and it kind of had the impact that they wanted and they kind of reaped the value for themselves, at least the owners of the companies. Yeah, right, right. Well, I have to agree is that from the investor perspective that I used to have as a VC, um, the kind of soul that Rocket has definitely appeals to investors. And we were quite happy with all the investments we did with Rocket Internet. Um, yes. But from your view as a, um, as, a, as a founder within the organization um, who skilled ventures, do you think it would have helped to have that other kind of soul as well? Could the ventures have been more successful? So uh, that's a great question because... I think by nature of how, like, so when you are blitz scaling, like, especially in a sense that Rocket kind of did, um, the point is to, you know, really amass all the value as fast as possible. And it, it's kind of what SoftBank is doing too. So once you have made something so big, kind of like Lazada uh, or Zalora, it's at that point when, you know, things start not making sense and you're investing to build the market instead of actually growing value because uh, people actually need it, right? Uh, it's, you start working backwards and that's kind of what Grab is doing now, right? So they are so big now that they have to work backwards to find their soul. And what that kind of really means is, you know, understanding what the core value prop is and what is the real path to profitability and how do you actually make talent stick, 
right? Because early on, it's just a burnout culture. Um, so it's very purpose-built to get to that value, to probably sell it, to capture that value for the early investors. But, you know, like at that certain point, you know, only someone like Alibaba could afford that and make it happen. But now it's their job to work backwards, to do all those things that a mature company needs to do, put those processes that make sense, having a longer-term vision. Um, so it's a different kind of strategy, I would say, than versus, you know, how we're used to hearing the Silicon Valley story of bootstrapping, uh, you know, something that works in one city is going to work across every single city in the U.S. So they get product market fit very fast and then scaling is very easy. And then, you know, it feels like a very good narrative from the West, you know, which is maybe there's a reason why it's been done this way for, you know, Southeast Asia, Asia. Yeah. Well, thanks. Very interesting. Cool. Uh, which is kind of nice to the last line for Kevin, right? A, a vision board of pain points. And this is very much uh, from Kevin's kind of viewpoint of how he would create a vision for companies, and it's, which is very poignant now because he's taking over his family business. Um, so not everyone is going to be like an Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. The, those guys kind of just say how the world is and they kind of just make it happen. And, you know, they say they know design and kind of truthfully look at the products and what the sales of what they do. They've made great products that people want, but it's kind of coming from them because they know what customers want. Uh, more realistically, though, it could be more like Jeff Bezos where you kind of look at the customers. And this is what kind of Kevin's saying. He would create his vision. So when you first build your MVP, you think you have your hypothesis, you know how the world works, you have your, maybe you have your domain expertise and you think you know how it is. But the most important point is to go straight to your customers and always kind of revisit that vision and see if those pain points match up to the actual vision. And if not, you know, you kind of have to start shifting the product to see where the value is. And Kevin says, just follow the pain points and then build your value bottom up from there. So that was, that was the point about how he thinks about vision. So early on, you may have a vision and you kind of have to be stubborn, but you have to be flexible with it too, to start adjusting to, you know, cause pain points on the flip side of the coin is the value, right? And uh, it's, it's more of a, over a few years, the vision develops. It's not like you have a vision from day one and you got to stick to it. And I think maybe that's where some founders might get tripped up if they're too stuck on something and it's not really matching up to what the customers are feeling or experiencing. Okay, so second entrepreneur, uh, Jun Chan, uh, his last venture was Cooked Global. It was a basically a food delivery company, but previous to that, he has a very similar profile to me. He was also a venture builder uh, for Zalora. Uh, he started uh, in Malaysia. Uh, he quickly joined the global rocket team, which was very rare back then. Uh, later on, he was also responsible for reg managing regionally Easy Taxi. Uh, he was the one who directly competed with Anthony Tan early days. Uh, some very crazy stories between the two. Uh, I don't think I could share too many of them, but it was a very intense battle once uh, Grab decided to start spending money. Uh, so, you know, so back then it was Rocket Internet versus Grab. Uh, and of course, Rocket was not really paying attention to the space. And then I think the, the rest is history, as you know. Uh, so the, for the first lesson from June, though, you know, startups are extremely fragile. So this kind of lesson comes from his story. And when he was building his first company in Shanghai, when he was really young, um, he just kind of wanted to go to Shanghai to kind of try out living in a big city. Uh, and he just joined a bunch of founders who were not really experienced. And I think the number one reason why startups fail are founder conflicts or founder chemistry not working out. So it's not really because companies run out of money. That's the second reason. So if you're thinking about building your own company now, 
you are basically married to your co-founders and you got to think really carefully what that means. And you got to think very long-term, right? You're being married to this person, not for a few years and trying to make an exit. If you are, you're probably most likely not going to succeed. It's more like you're going to be there for a decade, two decades, maybe longer, right? Uh, and the number one reason why they fail is because people kind of don't get that foundation and relationship, right? They don't build a chance for communication with their founders. Of course, secondly, it's just running out of money, which is very common. You know, you didn't have the right product market fit. Uh, you just did not know how to budget your money. Uh, and I think from me talking to a lot of entrepreneurs in Singapore, a lot of the new guys coming in, uh, if they're first-time founders, this is a very common theme that gets swept under the rug because there's so much money in Singapore. Um, but you know, it's very easy just to mismanage money or fall victim to pressures of VC forcing you to kind of spend a lot of money and you not knowing how to kind of push back or how to manage that kind of relationship. So the, the point is, you know, startups are a lot more fragile than you think. Just because someone has raised a Series C, Series D does not mean they can fail, right? So there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And I think that was his lesson when he went to Shanghai, uh, where his first startup actually failed because he couldn't work it out, the differences with his founders. Uh, second thing is, you know, carefully consider your motivations. Um, he had very flimsy, June had very flimsy motivations when he started his company. I just want to be in a big city and just, I just want to simply try something. Maybe it'll work out. Uh, you know, most of the times you got to really consider why you're building your company uh, because that's going to be a big determinant, you know, if you have the grit to stick and continue building it in the long run. Uh, another friend I had, he's the CTO of Hipvan in Singapore, which is a fashion e-commerce company. It got to raise Series B, a profitable company now. Uh, he told me his reason for starting Hipvan was really stupid uh, when he first started out. He just wanted to learn, right? So, but, you know, it turned out, luckily, it turned out to be okay for him. It worked out in the end, but, uh, you know, you kind of want to have a deeper reason, something maybe more meaningful to you personally, or uh, you see a real pain point that creates, you know, value. Uh, you have a unique insight. Basically, you have a secret that people don't know about, right? You got to think about why you're doing it and also what motivates you. It can be something like money. There's nothing wrong with, you know, what people or society would say as uh, bad motivations because they could be powerful. They could get you to a certain point, but it has to also be on, has to go beyond money, you know, all, all companies need money, but it should be something else. You should root yourself in maybe multiple motivations that can drive you forward and think about identifying them. Because when things get really hard, you got to remind yourself about that. Uh, so this one's a little bit harder to kind of um, conceptualize because so, June is a very unique character if you ever get to meet him. Um, I think because I personally know him, I could kind of capture this kind of learning. So when June, when he first left school, you know, most people think about getting a job and they're kind of probably victim to what everyone else was doing at the time. Back then for me, it was, you know, let's go join banking and finance, which is why my first experience was in like, you know, financial markets and investing. Uh, but June was like, no, uh, you know, I, I don't care what people say. He just decided to go travel the world, uh, backpack around the world. Um, it didn't really bother him. Uh, second thing is when he first got his first job working for a venture capital firm back in Malaysia, uh, he got it. So it's a government, it was called MAFCAP. So MAFCAP is a pretty big government VC in Malaysia. Uh, he got to the office on the first day and he looked at the office like, this is too corporate. I don't like it. So the first thing he did is look into a directory of MAFCAP, found a separate project that a CEO was working under MAFCAP, emailed him, says, I want to transfer departments. And he left uh, and the CEO agreed and he was able to transfer departments. Most people would say, oh, well, I'm stuck in this kind of situation. Well, like, I guess I'll just do what people tell me, right? But not for June, right? So he's always constantly thinking against the grain. Uh, find ways 
find ways or create ways to your objective, even if you're blocked. So when Jun wanted to join Rocket Internet, he was based in Shanghai. He saw Rocket Internet was coming. They were going to spend a lot of money in the region. Uh, he tried to apply traditionally to you know, HR. HR kind of bounced him around, didn't get him an interview. So what he did is he went to a party where all the MDs of Zalora were going to, skipped a queue, met an MD, got, got, got into a conversation, and got himself hired, you know, even though he couldn't get through HR, right? Um, and I guess the, the last learning was uh, when he started Easy Taxi, he was just in charge of one country uh, for Malaysia. But, you know, within six months, he was able to convince the, the, the management from Brazil that he wanted to manage the whole entire region, which is eight countries. And that's only within six months, you know, without even proving yourself. So I think my point is, like, really think about what's how your, your mode of work is, how your thinking is. And there's probably a different way around your problems. You know, it's not a lot of people kind of do these kind of things that I noticed. And June was one special person who just got whatever he wanted whenever he just tried. You know, he just said, you know, why not try it? You know, just it's if it's logical, if, you know, you could calculate the risks uh, and then just go for it. And I think, you know, that applies to your startup, um, who you're working with, the problems you're solving, you know, really think against the grain. Um, and I hear this a lot with a lot of young people. You give them an assignment, like a really hard KPI. Instead of going to first principles and saying, you know, okay, let me question those assumptions. You know, it's too hard. Is it really too hard to do? Uh, how can I think about ways around to figuring out the solution, right? Uh, instead, they'll just be like, oh, this is too hard. You give me, uh, you know, too hard of a KPI. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to fail. Uh, I think you got to really think the other way and, um really think from first principles and just think ways around it, just like June did, right? It's just, if you can't get what you want, there's definitely some way to do it. There's always another option. Okay, so this is- Go against the grain mentality. Obviously it's very prevalent in Silicon Valley um, in, in startup culture. How do you think this is perceived in more conservative environments? Um, whether it's a cultural conservative environment, but also um, B2B environments, conservative industries, um, for example, all of us now are working with industry partners in the travel industry, which yeah. is not exactly known to be progressive uh, over the past couple of decades. Yeah. Um, so I had actually uh, one of the later founders I'm going to introduce. Yeah, he for him, he felt it's actually an Asia problem. For me, my, my career really you know, took off in Asia. So I always frame everything as an Asia problem. But I always think, honestly, if I go back to the U.S., I honestly think it's probably the, the same you know, I think young people are just young people and um, there are some cultural differences. Yes. I think, you know, there is this natural tendency to not question too much and you're expected to be spoon fed. But, you know, I think if you look in corporate culture across the world, you're probably going to find the same issue. Uh, in a B2B context, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, that's a little bit trickier, right? Because when you're building like, for example, like a SaaS product, uh, you have multiple stakeholders, multiple owners, like the end user is going to be using the product, which is probably the employees, but the decision maker is the VP or the, you know, the owner of the company. And it's satisfying both. Um, so in that sense, you're right. Uh, the, the owner may not agree with it, even though the employees want it or vice versa, the owner wants it, but the employees think it's shit and they won't use a product. Right. So, uh, sorry, I shouldn't curse, <laughs> but uh, so it's more about, I would apply this kind of thinking that, you know, you at the end of the day, you need the sale from your industry partner or from your the corporate who, need, who makes the decision. 
it's more about you have to apply that own concept. It's like, how can I get, how can I think against the grain to make this guy understand, right? Uh, you might not be able to change that guy's mind. Uh, you know, he's going to believe what he wants to believe. Belief is a really damn powerful thing. Uh, but you have to, as an entrepreneur, have to find a way around it to kind of make that sale happen, right? So that's maybe what I could say. Right. So we could maybe go against the grain more internally and then yes, to yeah. the outside. And I think that was a point with June. Like, it's very hard to kind of put your thumb on it. Just like he does things that most people normally don't do in situations somehow come out on top. Um, and lots of times people just get blocked and don't internalize deeper to see like, you know, it's, it's me that it's actually blocking the way forward. Not this guy saying, no, it's you as the founder has a responsibility to make the communication and vision happen. Just like when you're pitching and raising money, if the investor doesn't understand that's your fault, right? You know, like I'm sure people have pitched you and you're like, I don't get it, but like, uh, it's really up to the founder to kind of make that bridge that communication. Right. So that's, that's what I say. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess it all boils down to us being adaptable um, and reacting uh, to whichever situation we find ourselves in. Yep. Yep. Cool. So for uh, episode three, I did uh, Amy Chan, a very interesting character. I think she's just very good at storytelling. So it's a very entertaining story that people give a lot of positive feedback. Uh, basically, ex-consultant, went to Harvard Law, very good profile, uh, got jaded eventually, and then founded a healthy snack company. Uh, so this company only raised one round of funding, uh, but you know has grown massively since that round of funding to bootstrapping all the way up to you know uh, operating in maybe six countries now. Uh, they have two factories, a few warehouses, uh, you know, going from two founders to a few hundred employees uh, just on one round, right? So, I think if you listen to her story, uh, it's very interesting because you you kind of want to understand your own story too. And I listened to Amy's story and it's just a continuous hardship in her life. She grew up in communist China. She was a, what she calls herself a fat immigrant in Australia uh, and she struggled a lot. And I think all those early challenges kind of made her very gritty. And I think, you know, grit is one of the, every, everyone will say this, this is a very common knowledge, but people don't kind of internalize it enough. Uh, you know, you nearly need grit. And I think that's what Amy brought to Amazing Grace, why they were able to just be so successful even though every single month, you know, they didn't know how they're going to pay their employees, where the funding was going to come from, uh, how they were going to, you know, scale. Uh, and this, this kind of came from her just general background. So maybe a good exercise would be for each of the founders here is just to think, you know, how am I gritty? Uh, maybe you're not gritty, right? Uh, maybe that's, and maybe you have to kind of be okay with that. But the question is, how do you handle that for your organization then? Is your partner and your co-founder gritty? Uh, can you build grittiness into the culture, Right. But in general, it's something that's a muscle that you're gonna have to build over time because you know startups are like a roller coaster, very painful one day and then very high highs the next day. And it's constantly back and forth. And you kind of need that grit to, you know, when, when things are tough, you gotta dig down. Um, some people naturally have it like Amy from her background, but other people kind of have to kind of think about it more proactively. Uh, number two, you know, keep a scrappy culture. So this kind of, I got this kind of lesson from Amy when she was telling about her first working experience uh, you know, she was, I think, doing an internship from Harvard Law. Uh, she was based in India. So basically, it's an NGO that rescues abused victims, uh, you know, people from abuse, all kinds of abuse, just domestic abuse, uh, sexual abuse. Uh, her first day going flying into India was jumping into a van, going to rescue a, a bunch of people from a family who were being abused. Um, but the point is, she was able to kind of do this because she had no money as a poor student. 
And she had to basically ask all her friends to give donations each month just to figure out her rental and food costs. And I think those kind of early lessons of, you know, not being ashamed to kind of beg for money, ask for money and keep it scrappy, you know, live as cheap as possible in India. Uh, you know, she kind of took that to amazing grace because I, I could tell you from, you know, I know the story personally, month to month, they really had no idea how they were going to, um, you know, pay their employees. You know, I even had to give them a few loans a few times. And uh, you got to keep this this kind of scrappy culture because you don't know when things are going to hit the fan. You know, you could be doing one really well one day, but the next day, uh, you know, COVID happens, all your, your demand drops down to 0%. And then what are you going to do? Right? You have to really keep it scrappy. So what else did we learn from Amy? Uh, so early on, I think the reason why they were really successful, I don't think you kind of do this. You can't do this anymore for physical products these days. So if you have a physical product, um, this might not work as well, but they basically started selling their healthy snacks in these kind of uh, bazaars and weekend markets. So the reason why they were able to kind of iterate so fast was because every time they gave a product to the customer, they got the feedback directly from them. Uh, same thing as the lesson, lessons from Airbnb. You should have just picked up your phone and talked to your customers to kind of figure out your early product, right? So don't be afraid to really, you know, do things that 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 you know really interact with the customers, especially if you have a you know an engineering partner. And I've experienced this myself, where they just think you know data is everything. You know, I think there's a good balance between hard data, but also you know data that's more softer, like you know you know feedback from actual customers who's actually paying you know, and. Uh, who are actually paying you, right? Which is a second learning. So lots of times there's a lot of arguments about freemium models versus, um, you know, whether or not you should start monetizing earlier. Uh, you should be talking to your customers earlier. And then I think the data that you should be getting from is paid customers. Uh, the only time this would not really apply is if you were like Facebook and uh, the, um, the value of your company is derived by how how many times a user uses company. So if you're not able to raise money and a lot of money, you're probably in the boat where you need to probably become profitable or start figuring out who's going to pay for your company. And so getting feedback from customers who are paying is a lot more important than just pricing a product too low or just giving your product out for free and not and then iterating your product in the wrong direction because when you scale it up, when you start charging them, they're not going to pay, right? So if you're in the boat where you know you maybe you have raised money but you're running out and you can't raise again, start looking at the customers who are paying, focus back onto that, and then iterate from there. Uh, same thing. I, the last question and I talked to Amy in her session in her interview was why did she think Amazing Grace was so successful? And basically, it simply comes down to her being massively focused on customers, being obsessing about the customers and their feedback. So it all kind of ties together in the end, right? Alex, going back to the topic of grit, uh, we have a question from Linda, which is interesting because she happens to be in my team um, from my startup. Um, and her, her question is, um, how do you pass on that, um, that scrappy culture, that grittiness? Um, should you pass it on to employees beyond the core team, beyond the leadership team? So Linda joined us early on. She's definitely <laughs> experiencing the whole scrappiness, grittiness of, of the early days um, of, a, of a venture. But what happens when you scale, when you have 200, 300 employees? Right. So it goes back to the first lesson with uh, Kevin Hoon. Like, uh, as a founder, if you want that in your organization, you have to be very purposeful about it and say it. And the question, should you? Um, can you imagine a company with two different cultures 
And then what happens is what friction arises. And what is friction? What people call it, they call it politics, right? Uh, in general, uh, from day one, if you don't get that right, if you don't get the foundation right, it's going to fracture the company very early on. And what ends up happening is that you have to spend many, possibly one, two, three years fixing the culture because it takes time, right? Uh, if there's toxic people and depending on your labor markets, you have to cycle them out. If you're not rock internet, you just can't fire people at will. Um, you know, it, it's, you essentially, my answer would be like, yes, you, you need to, if you want scrappiness, and I, I think personally early on you do, of that scrappiness as you do scale. Um, I guess to her, maybe what she's alluding to her point is when do you be scrappy and when do you spend? And that's a very tough question. Some founders do hold on too long, um, you know, where they just are, I would say it's like not even being scrappy. It's just like not being smart about deploying capital, right? So like in the case of like Amazing Grace, right, uh, Amy, they had they have always reinvested all of their money but just because you reinvest all your money does not mean you're not being scrappy, right? They, 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 have, to be, they have to prioritize the spendings that make sense to have the highest impact. Um, and then that kind of has to translate down to the, to the employees to understand those kind of decisions. So on a culture, you have to be on the same page. And scrappiness, even when you are deploying capital, you, know, you still kind of want to have that kind of mindset. And you got to be on the same page with that. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> Yeah, I think so, Linda. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Okay. So, interestingly enough, this is—I uh, forgot to put his title. Uh, he was the ex-chief uh, marketing officer of Zalora Malaysia. Eventually, he was a VP for the whole Lazada Group, uh, and he is actually uh, partners with uh, Amy, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, for a long time. Uh, also, a good friend. So. His story was very interesting. He came from also an economic background, small little country town in Malaysia. Um, he had a very interesting trajectory. You know, as a minority in Malaysia, in the schooling system, you kind of have this uh, reverse system where the majority gets all the benefits and minorities get punished. Whereas in America, you know, the minorities get the benefits and the majority gets nothing, right? So he had a lot of challenges early on, but what really helped him... Uh, excel and move forward with all his mentors in his life. So his first mentor was his math teacher, which got him interested into financial engineering. He gave him a book, told him to read the book. He was interested in the subject. That then in turn caused him to apply to a school with a program in financial engineering. At that school, then he got interested in debate. Debate helped him really develop critical skills that were necessary. And he had a very good mentor as a debate coach who helped him develop those skills. And without his Without him learning debate, he would have never gotten an interview at BCG from a non-target school. So BCG had this, uh, BCG is the you know the famous management consulting company. If people don't know, uh, Boston Consulting Group. So they had this program where they were hiring uh, for students from non-target schools. And without debate and his mentor from debate, he would have not gone to BCG. And then in BCG had a very good mentor who helped, who gave him a shot because he was struggling. He almost got fired. Uh, without that mentor at BCG, at BCG, he would have never been a candidate to be able to join Lazada, right? So these kind of mentors cascade and compound. So you kind of want to think about your life, you know, who has been your mentor? Have you had mentors actively? Have you not had mentors actively? And you want to really start surrounding yourself with good mentors because they can completely alter your trajectory of your life, your startup, right? Uh, you could even argue, uh, you know, if Brian Chesky didn't have Paul Graham, he would never talk to the customers and maybe Airbnb would have failed, 
right? So mentors are massively important in your life. Uh, and I would argue, you know, you have indirect mentors and direct members, uh, mentors. So direct mentors are the people are in your network who you know, who you could talk to right away, you could reach out to. Uh, you could actually ask their time, you know, call them, chat with them, et cetera. But there's also indirect mentors, right? We we live in a world where there's just so much formats for learning now from podcasts to uh, YouTube to just like any kind of format of, you know, education online uh, and all those experts, you know, you're hearing them talking to people in interviews. It's like if you're sitting there listening and asking the questions yourself and those people can be your mentors, Right. Uh, so, Alex, so I, yeah. who would you say were your top two mentors looking back at your career until now? Um, you mentioned a lot of these people who you've interviewed were friends of yours. So I guess a lot of them mentored you as well. Who were the top two? And I'm guessing not Ali Zamber, probably. Uh, he's, and honestly, he's a very good indirect mentor, though. Like, I had literally <laughs> saved all my emails from Rocket. Like, that, <laughs> that guy was so detailed and intense. His emails were so, like, he just understood the space so well. So, I mean, in a sense, yeah, he, he was not a direct mentor. Like, I only met him a few times, but like, indirectly, the amount of content and, you know, what he did really well was sharing a lot. So, he did have a profound impact. Um, but direct mentors, I guess, June helped me a lot because he gave me a shot to join Easy Taxi from Zalora because he started Easy Taxi first. Um, uh, I, I, to be honest, I, I've had more, I say I, I had to scrap together more indirect mentors. I have a good feeling that if I was more purposeful earlier on in my career, if I had more direct mentors, maybe it would have a crazier trajectory possibly. I don't know. Uh, so I have to say that like, you know, I've had to kind of put things together myself. And which is why I kind of like to you know, do these kind of exercises and give back to the community because I feel that uh, it helps people on their journey and something that they could look for, something that I was kind of missing early on. So my my journey of mentors were more looser. Like I had many mentors. I didn't have one I would always go to. It depends on my chapter. So it's it's not a very good answer, but it's because I didn't really have probably very good fixed mentors, to, to be honest. And I had to have put all this information together myself, which was, you know, through a lot of trial and fire and a lot of, uh, you know, reflection, a lot of thinking. Yeah. Great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, so number two, you know, hone your critical thinking. Uh, I think we kind of touched on this point a little bit earlier. It kind of overlaps some lessons. Um, so for Andrew in the story, he developed critical thinking from uh, learning how to do debate, you know, as a, a competitive sport in, in university, right? And his, his point was like a lot of young people just don't engage in enough critical thinking. And it ties back to the idea of first principles that we talked earlier. It's just people don't question enough. They're not Socratic enough. And, you know, in your own startup journey, uh, just be, just, you know, think about how you could put that into your culture, especially young people. And I, again, I think it might be an Asian issue where people are just told what to do. They do it, but, you know, how do you infuse that into your culture? You know, you as your founder yourself, are you critical enough? Do you think, do you get to the root cause of issues? Do you ask, you know, maybe not five questions down, but maybe 10 questions down to the, to what you're trying to figure out, right? And that's a personal thing, but then how do you actually scale that to your organization as well, right? So critical thinking is an element that he brought up was, you know, one, what Andrew brought up was very important, one, to his career, but also then to figuring out the problems he was solving at the time, especially during his time at Lazada, you know, he felt that critical thinking applied to consulting and then moving to Lazada was very important to kind of survive in such an intense data-driven culture and to come out on top. Okay, so here's an interesting profile as well. So Isaac Faiz, uh, he's currently an engineering manager at Xverse, a very successful, uh, well, 
it's they have a lot of funding from Indonesia. It's a fintech company there. But before that, his claim to fame was that he joined Facebook before it IPO'd. Uh, he made enough money from stocks that he could live 20 years without ever working. Um, so he had, a, he had a very interesting journey uh, and tried to figure out after he left Facebook what to do. Um, and he, you know, he's not your traditional background. He's not like Amy. He didn't go to Harvard. Uh, he was actually kind of like a dropout uh, many times. Uh, he's, uh, he, he became a tech lead at Facebook. I don't know if anyone knows engineering, but becoming a tech lead is not an easy thing. It's a very coveted role in Silicon Valley. Um, and essentially, his first experience in programming, he failed programming in high school. But somehow, he ends up becoming a tech lead, right? Uh, it's just that probably school was not the good format for his learning. Uh, but you know, how did he get to the top then, right? So early on in his career, uh, he was kind of just bumbling around in jobs, and he was like kind of uh, um, an IT support guy. And then his boss came to said, "Like, I need to build a system for one of our clients," and threw a PHP book at him. And then uh, you know, he just read the book and figured out how to do programming from there. And then from there, he dived, he dove into the open source community in Malaysia early back then. So if you're familiar with Malaysia, you know, like all the guys who are kind of famous now, like, you know, Fave uh, founders, uh, Kylie Ung from 500 Startups, all these guys were in the same community that Isaac got into uh, because Isaac was on the tech side. So all those guys were looking for people like Isaac to build products for him. So Isaac built the early products for Kylie's first company that he sold. Uh, he built on an early prototype for what, uh, you know, Fave. Uh, sold to uh, the first, you know, uh, Joel Ung that he sold to Oliver Samuel later on for the first Groupon. So Isaac was on the other side of the story where he was just trying to hack and learn coding and get jobs from all these experiences. So think about your current communities. Are you really surrounded by like-minded individuals? Um, how are you contributing back to that community? Uh, and then if not, how do you get into them, right? So Isaac's point was like, he got his early breaks because, you know, he was a Basically, he dropped out of university, and he actually never graduated still. Uh, but he, because of his contributions to the community, he was able to learn how to code. Eventually, the problems he solved in the community led to his job at Facebook and then got into Silicon Valley eventually. Uh, second one is more about his experience. So he joined the prestigious growth team before it was a big thing. So growth, growth hacking, growth teams, uh, he was part of that whole success story. And Facebook kind of, you know, sort of kick-started the whole thing. Uh, and... The main point to the what the lesson we kind of share in his episode is you got to know your core value prop. The reason why Facebook was so successful and how the growth team really unlocked value for Facebook was because they understood it down to a formula. They knew what formula was needed to activate, you know, for you to, you know, invite all your friends to get them to start using it and to keep coming back. Uh, so think about your product. And I think it's, we kind of touched upon this earlier, you know, uh, kind of grab and rocket, they kind of work backwards where they just spend a lot of money to get market share. But now they have to, if you want to make it sticky and you want to make a great product and last and endure, you got to figure out your core value prop and build processes around that. So for your current companies, you know, what is your core value prop? You know, do you really understand the value you've created? And you got to be building processes around that, data around that to really unlock that value and scale, right? And that's how you could go through, you know, experimentation and iteration processes to get bigger and bigger especially, you know, assuming you understand your, your product market fit and what's driving it. Uh, his last, I think, lesson, uh, data is your friend. So 
Isaac, when he came back from Silicon Valley to Malaysia and Asia region, he did a lot of due diligence for VCs. So he worked with a lot of venture capital companies. And the number one thing he saw was that founders across the board and any country he would do due diligence, they just did not know how to use data. They didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the language. They didn't have the tools. And his point is, you know, like, this is just something that's really missing in the region. So if you are early stage um, think about what infrastructure is missing. You don't need to have 100 metrics. You don't need to track all the metrics because that's just impossible for your given resources of your early stage. But you need to know at least your core metrics and have some way to access that data and visualize it. Um, so that would be his, his advice to you know guys who he's seen across the region and what they were missing. And also that's really coming from his learnings from Facebook because data was a really uh, Facebook was a really intense data driven culture. <clears throat> So this is my, my friend, Kevin Tan. So he studied in UC Berkeley, uh, exposed to the Silicon Valley kind of culture, even though he was stayed in the Berkeley area. Uh, he decided to come back to join his family business, though. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, he decided to buy one of the companies under the, the, comp the family business portfolio, which was Europe Car. So Europe Car, of course, is one of the largest uh, car rental companies in the world. They own the franchises for Malaysia and Thailand. Um, uh, he's a very innovative kind of guy. He's tons of side projects, always coming with ideas. Um, very smart kid overall. Uh, but what I learned from Kevin is that, you know, he decided to actually leave Silicon Valley on purpose. Um, he knew that, you know, it's massively competitive, right? And he knew that he had some competitive advantage in Asia and he decided to come back and figure that out. And I guess you could apply that to your own startup. You know, when I, the, one of the mistakes that I made early on was just, when I'm doing a marketplace, I would think I would try to capture the whole market, which is just ridiculous. What you kind of want to do is, unless, you know, if you, especially if you don't have any money raised or you're trying to bootstrap it, think about what area you can win on. Is that focus on a niche that's big enough that can scale to a certain size, but it's still a niche where you could actually succeed, right? And that's kind of the lesson I think that Kevin brought to the table there. Um, secondly, you know, uh, Europe Car is this kind of old, franchise old corporate culture you know if you want to make young people join this old company you kind of have to consciously build it to make it sticky you know uh, the average age when he bought the company from his family business was 40 years old so he purposely made it come down to like 22 23 years old so he hired a bunch of people who are a lot younger brought that age down and started engaging in a lot of things that young people wanted to do for you know corporate building you know so he he you know made a much nicer office space. They started doing paintballing. Uh, they went out to food together. So it takes a lot of conscious effort to build a culture. And a lot, I, I don't know, I guess if you're, you know, you, you could be in one camp, like the, the, the founders of um, Shopify, where they don't believe in building the culture. But on the other hand, I think most of the time it really applies that you have to be extremely proactive about it. If you don't have activities planned with your group on a personal level to get to know each other, as soon as frictions happen, you know, it, that's when, you know, things start to fall apart. Uh, so Kevin really talked about, you know, him making conscious efforts to really make it happen. Because if not, no one's going to join an old car rental company, right? <clears throat> Interesting one is the food and beverage entrepreneurs. Uh, so Chai is the chef. Uh, he worked with many Michelin star chefs. Uh, these two chefs at least had more than three stars across all around the world. Um, they are a husband and wife couple. Uh, the first lesson is very interesting. So it's they make it seem and they, they argue that it is very possible that good friends or even loved ones can work together. 
I think the conventional advice is, you know, don't work with your friends, don't work with your wife. Uh, but, you know, they kind of flip this on their head and, you know, they, they say that the reason why they can do it is, you know, really strong communication. And, you know, I kind of agree with this. I, I had really bad experience in the past where I've worked with close friends and it didn't work out uh, because I wasn't prepared to go to the very uncomfortable spaces needed to reach a level of the relationship where you could speak on open terms and, you know, you could actually work through it. You just need to go extra deep and have a good, strong communication, which are, you know, functions of leadership, right? But, you know, it is possible. So, you know, if you are considering hiring your friends, you know, it's, I would say, you know, you can make it happen. Just be, be prepared to be very uncomfortable and strengthen the relationship. You know, you need good communication and it can happen. Um, so, and if you're looking at the F&B industry, especially fine dining, uh, you have micromanagement in the kitchen uh, and, you know, maybe the business manager in this case for, you know, Zihan, she is more of a macro management. Uh, it is possible to do macro and micro management, and I would remove the connotations associated with them. Uh, and I think Elon Musk also famously said this, right? He, and uh, this is also something that Oliver Samer did really well is that you micromanage the things that don't work. You really want to focus on fixing problems, you know, and then you want to macro manage areas where, things are, are already working, you know, why, why try to fix things that are already working, right? So in, the, in that kind of sense, you know, especially in a, when you're growing a startup, you will have to micromanage and you will have to macromanage. Uh, it's not like black or white. It's very gray, right? And uh, you kind of want to think about your own personal preference, but also how to subsidize, you know, subsidize, you know, subsidize that if it's missing in your culture, you know, if you have two founders who are very macro oriented, you know, you're going to have a lot of problems that people don't see that faster later on. If it's too micro-oriented, then, you know, you probably start micromanaging things that don't need to be micromanaged, right? So I, I would think of it in terms of, you know, a scale and, uh, you know, how to dial in and how to dial out. Um, this was a very interesting learning for number three. Product experiences live both in the physical and digital. Um, coming from a tech background and scaling consumer tech, uh, it feels very uh, intangible at times uh, because, you know, you're, you're working with data. You're working with cohort analysis. You're working with product decisions derived from data. Uh, you tend to forget, like you know, uh, if you're trying to call a, a taxi app or like an Uber, right? You know, your experience is also tied to how how it is outside in the physical world. You know, uh, you know what kind of phone you're using. Is it raining outside? Am I waiting in the cold, right? So, uh, am I waiting in the air conditioning, right? All these kind of things factor into the user experience. And for Chai and Zihan, this was a really good point because you know. When you're building an F&B experience, the, the decor, the lighting, the color, are all they all matter. Is my restaurant based in an office building? Is it based in a food court? And they designed the whole experience to be very physical and very, very purposeful. Um, you know, and then they see like, you know, uh, if it was cold outside today, I'm going to make soup, right? Uh, if they ate something very heavy, I'm going to adjust the next desserts so that it's lighter with the perfect touch at the end. And I think as tech founders, you tend to forget there is this physical element. So when you think about user experience, think about the physical as well and how you want to design your product. Um, so that's kind of a translation from, you know, F&B to maybe tech that, you know, you tend to forget one side or the other, but, you know, it's really user experience comes down to both. Uh, Renyi Chin, so he's the co-founder of My Burger Lab. It's a pretty famous burger lab in KL. So if you are looking for a very good burger and you're visiting Malaysia, highly recommended. Uh, it's, his inspiration came from Shake Shack and In-N-Out, if anyone's familiar with the famous burger chains in the U.S. Um, he is just the perfect guy for you know, this kind of business. Very, uh, he's very customer-focused, uh, very uh, hospitality-driven. Um, and the interesting quote I have here is, 
the longer I'm in this business, I realize it's what you sell and whether you do a good job of selling that idea that what makes the difference. Um, so, and I think that idea derives from the fact that, you know, he found a good product market fit already. He knows his users and what burgers they like, and it sells no matter what, because it's really, it's, it's because it just tastes good. But at that point, you know, you have other burgers too that are competing. But the question is, how do you position yourself to make it more appealing, which comes down to branding, experience, uh, and hospitality, right? And that's, you know, you going into one burger shop. Yes, both burgers may taste good. One may have a preference, but what might define that experience is how you actually sell it. So how can we translate that to your own tech startups or your current projects, you know? If you have good product market fit, you know, you want to think about the distribution and the marketing, but then how are you really selling it in the long run, especially in the face of competition where it's very similar, right? Of course, you want your competitive advantages, you want to build your moats, but at the same time, you know, uh, branding is a very good moat to also kind of build upon uh, if you can do so, right? Very sticky once people are very loyal to your brand. The last one was a very personal kind of learning, uh, very tough for him to kind of bring up, got very emotional. Uh, difficult conversations. So the first learning though, is that Renyi had built such a very good culture in his organization that um, most of the time, you know, conversations were not difficult because he was very close to employees. Um, you know, even firing people was not terrible, right? So they could get onto the same page. So if you do a very good job of building culture, most of the time, you're not going to have hard conversations. However, some of them are unavoidable. For example, in his case, he had a very difficult conversation with the founder who his founder was not keeping up with the growth of the company. They're at the point where they need to do internationalization. They need to open up into other markets, but the founder is still doing the same job he was doing from day one, um, which was a very good job, but he needed more. He needed a partner to bounce off ideas. So you're going to have to be prepared for hard conversations, especially with your co-founders. Um, you are married to them. Just like if you, anyone has a spouse or a long-term partner, you have difficult conversations. You can't avoid them. If not, it's just going to break things down the road. So, you know, be prepared to have them, uh, expect them and figure out ways to kind of do it. <clears throat> Episode nine. So Francesca Chia, co-founder of GoGet. Uh, recently, uh, I did an interview a few weeks ago, a few months ago, probably. Uh, but last week, she just raised $2 million from Monk Hill Ventures from Singapore. Uh, so this is after six years of trying to figure out product market fit, right? So this is what I'm talking about. Like if you're bootstrapping in Asia, expect a long time to get product market fit. And the reason, the most interesting story about Francesca was that uh, she was able to grow consistently across six years, but without changing her team size. And I think that was a defining feature that allowed her to raise in her most recent round. Um, so like, if you're expecting to operate here and you don't have a lot of money, just expect, you know, a long, hard journey like Francesca. And I think she's a very good, uh, example of what an entrepreneur profile might look like if you're doing it in the Silicon Valley kind of way where, you know, you're trying to figure out product market fit. Because when I first did the interview, I thought back in 2015, she had no clue what she was doing. The product was terrible. The experience was terrible. She was overcharging. Uh, but, you know, when I met up with her a few years later, she matured into this very good founder who had, had figured it out, understood her market, and was able to raise a lot of money to now scale regionally, which was something that makes a lot of sense now. Despite, you know, Grab, despite... Um, all the other guys in this kind of space, uh, sorry, in the space that she's working is, uh, she's she has a platform that's very similar to Grab where they have uh, a gig economy of go-getters who basically do delivery or any other tasks you want them to do, right? Kind of like a concierge service. Um, so for the first lesson, you know, product market fit is often a feeling 
I know that's very unsatisfactory for the data-driven people, uh, but this is something coming from Fran, and I kind of agree with her. Um, there's no one exact definition of product market fit, even from the ex experts from Silicon Valley, right? And what she means by feeling is that you're struggling for many years, and all of a sudden, the next acquisition wasn't hard anymore. It was super easy. You didn't actually have to do any marketing. Uh, it came from word of mouth. Uh, the cost made sense, right? The customer acquisition cost was really low and they keep coming in, right? So it start, you start to feel like, oh, this was a lot easier and I do have product market fit and things get better from there, right? So for her, product market fit was this kind of feeling that, you know, it's hard to kind of describe, but, you know, you just know it when it happens. Uh, we In this episode, we talked a lot about fundraising, which is very pertinent. I didn't know she was raising at the time, but uh, her she she raised money from 500 startups very early on in the journey when 500 just joined the region. This is the early heyday of gig economy, right? Uh, so she got her she got two rounds from 500s of startups, and she said that she she thinks that she raised money too early. So it's very possible to raise money too early, and what she means by that is that she didn't have product market fit, and she did a lot of she wasted a lot of time and money on activities that not did not get her to product market fit or understanding her core value prop. And that leads to lack of discipline and you running out of money possibly, right? So she was, uh, you know, she probably did burn through all of her seed money, but what she realized that she couldn't raise money back then. So she had to work to profitability. And because of that, you know, then she was able to find product market fit and raise later on, but that was a very long journey, right? So, you know, if you're thinking about raising money, she suggests that if you don't have product market fit, you can raise, but maybe raise less money than you probably think to keep the discipline, right? Um, this is uh, very pertinent for early stage. Okay, so the last one is early stage fundraising is not a science. Um, you know, for her, she said early stage funding is really about the founders itself. Uh, you know, you have a general idea, a general MVP, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, for her, at least it was selling herself and every single person would give her different advice. So it's not gonna be perfect. Don't expect, you know, one formula is gonna work for all when you're building your pitch deck. Uh, you know, you really gotta think about tailoring your pitch deck while not sacrificing your core vision and your core product, right? Because um, some people, they just tailor the product to whatever, what people wanna hear, raise money, but then they get nowhere as well. You know, they don't understand anything about their, their, their business and they also get nowhere as well. Right. So uh, it's not as some people will say, it's very straightforward. And one, two, three, you just follow these steps and put these, you know, in the slide and you're going to raise money, which actually can happen in Singapore. But that might just lead you to, you know, not building something that's very valuable. Uh, Benjamin Tio, a very interesting profile as well. He basically built one of the Malaysia's largest co working spaces. Uh, it's one of the big players in the market. Uh, he actually has done this under his family business, Paramount Group which is a, one of the largest property developers in Malaysia. Basically, he's going to inherit a company that's generating you know, a few hundred million dollars a year. Uh, but he was lucky enough that his father allowed him to take a risk to build something more uh, related to the tech startup world, which is co-working back then, at least back in 2017, 2018, right, when WeWork was investing a lot. Um, so he has a very interesting profile of family business and kind of being close to tech startups because all the tech startups were working in co-working and were his customers. Um, but for him, at least, you know, consider your weak, consider your weakness personally and professionally. And this was advice he got from his father. So Ben was a person of privilege. He grew up a very good life, very wealthy family. Uh, but his father and uncle basically told him that was going to be a problem for you, right? Because you're not hungry. All you guys probably in this program 
uh, are not from a privileged background. If you are, well, then maybe you're like Ben could think about it like him. But uh, for him, they said that that's going to be a weakness. So how do you think about your competitive advantage and what are you going to bring to the table professionally and personally, right? So for your for the business, what can you add and what can you compliment to someone who's hungry? How can you fight them, right? So it's very much the same thing. When you're building your team and your co-founders, think about what is your what is your strength? What is your weakness? How can you complement each other, right? And I think that was very important to Ben to getting his feet and understanding himself to become, you know, someone who could actually make, uh, you know, collabs, the co-working space, very successful in Malaysia. You know, if he wasn't able to solve that, you know, maybe he wouldn't have figured this out. Uh, so maybe that's the learning. It's more introspective, I guess. Think about yourself and your impact and how it fits into the bigger picture. Uh, so you could, you know, know how to work with the team and build culture. Uh, and this also touches upon one of the discussion points we had earlier. You know, culture culture building is, is leading by example. Uh, so if you want to talk about scrappiness and how do you bring that, you have you yourself have to tell people this is our values, right? This is our culture. This is we want to be scrappy, and you must constantly remind it. But at the same time, you have to live it. You can't be going out to you know to a lunch and spending a ton of money. Uh, you know your salary cannot be more than two or three times X to your lowest employee, especially when you don't have money, right? Unless you're profitable or unless you raise too much money, right? Uh, you know you have to live the values day in and day out, and it has to be a constant at top of mind exercise, right? You have to always really make sure that it's something that you're leading by example to build that culture out. Okay, so the last one, my, my latest episode, Joanne Kwa, a very interesting profile as well. Uh, so her background is from a family business as well. They were the largest insurance company in Malaysia, uh, so the fourth largest at, at one point. They had a monopoly on car insurance. Um, but back in two early 2000s, they sold the insurance business and started building a conglomerate. So basically, she's the CEO of a conglomerate. They have co-founded two tech startups, Sunday Insurance in Bangkok and Carmana in Bangkok as well, which is um, so uh, Sunday Insurance is a full stack insert tech company. Carmana is a secondhand auto marketplace, just like, I guess, Carsum in Malaysia. Uh, they also are in property development uh, and they also do insurance still. So they do a lot of a lot of businesses across many, many uh, industries. Um, First learning for Joanne is, you know, opportunity in time of crisis. She started her career in a financial crisis. Uh, you know, she's operating a conglomerate during COVID when, you know, movement restriction means property development has to stop. Uh, but for her, you know, she said that in these times, because you're able to survive is when she learned and grew the most. So her advice was, you know, even though there's a crisis, you got to dig in and see where the silver lining is and treat it as an opportunity to learn and grow, right? And, you know, if you can survive, you come out stronger at the end of the day. And especially the guys who can survive and grow now are the ones who are getting funded in this time. Um, number two, your team is your company. And her quote is, a company is nothing but if not for its people. And I think this... Uh, we were talking about, you know, her becoming a leader, you know, coming out from the shadow of her father, who was a very successful businessman in Malaysia. Uh, and she said she derived her value as a leader by growing her people, right? And how she treats her people in turn ends up how you how those people treat her customers. And essentially, you know, she is nothing without, you know, she's not a leader without her people and the customers combined, right? So it's it's all the, all the, and all the elements of the business are interlinked, and you really got to understand that, you know. Really, you know, your team is everything because at the end of the day, it's what they do for the value they create for your customers and how you are as a leader and how you interact together. 
last the last learnings was you know some some big some big deals take a long time. Um, so when she sold the insurance company back in the early thousands, she came back from London from banking and then joined the family business. Her first job was to sell this massive insurance company that was writing you know 1.2 billion ringgit in premiums a year. Uh, they sold the company for 1.6 billion ringgit, um, but it took two years, right? So sometime you know it you have to be tenacious to make something valuable you know, come either come to fruition or to make it last or to create it right so you got to be tenacious and you got to have that grit um you know especially if you want to do big things and i think that was her, her her main lesson um so i guess with that 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 brings us to the end you know so if you like these learnings uh you know we're talking to more founders uh, if any of the founders here you know have an interesting story we'd love to also talk to you guys uh, but, you know, basically, I hope you enjoyed it. And welcome to your journey of being an entrepreneur of Asia. Alex, thanks so much. This was very, very interesting. Awesome insights. Um, and we still have about 20 minutes for some questions. Um, so everyone, please feel free to chime in, um, either through the chat or just quickly unmute yourself. Um, I'll maybe kick off with a um, question about with all these interviews. Obviously, you highlighted things that I guess you, for the most part, agree with. Have there been any topics where you disagreed, where where a successful entrepreneur shared something that they believe in, where you say, no, actually, I've experienced this differently? Oh, man, that's a tough question. Um, there's there's so many things. Um, off the top of my head, you're going to have to let me think a little bit. Sure. Um, okay, yeah. Or maybe I, something, I mean, especially with the rocket, rocket internet background, yeah. which is a very different philosophy, but but extremely successful philosophy of company building. Um, yeah. Culture is built. I know, for example, Zalando has, has um, a great people culture now, mm. but they certainly didn't have that in the early days. Yeah. How important is culture in the very early stage? Or does it matter to get traction, to be successful, to attract uh, financing, and then you can start building culture? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I, I would argue even the case of Rocket, um, they could have just done it better from the start, but it's not their their core value strength, right? Their, their core value strength is in ruthless execution and productivity. Um, uh, very German elements, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, no, no offense to anyone, <laughs> but I, mean, I think that's a good thing, right? Um, but I, I think that in terms of culture, you know, you you do need to get it early, no matter what. Uh, it's, I mean, you can you can do it that way. I think what what happens is that it's easier to ignore culture early on because when you're small. Uh, it's more intuitive, right? Things just jive. And when you don't think about it is when you get the first person who doesn't understand your culture because you made a mistake in your hiring, right? Uh, and that's when you start to have the problems. And what happens is you start, if you're not very ex attuned to it, or if you're, you're, you're not, maybe you're not EQ tuned, or if you're not even just experienced in handling that, what happens, you'll ignore it. Like you think, oh, it's just, you know, the person. But what's happening is they're challenging the culture by not actively embracing and engaging with it. And that is that that tiny little schism multiplies very fast once you start rapidly hiring more people. And then that's when factions form and it really starts from day one. So you, you do need to get it early. Um, and I guess one thing I guess I could answer is the one thing I didn't agree with with June's kind of takeaway for so for episode two, he said, you know, uh, you should just, uh, if you're young, take a risk and just try. I, I think that in startups, you can do that when you're young because you can be afforded to make mistakes and learn, which is what he's saying. He has no regrets, basically. But, you know, if you are starting a, a venture, which is why I talk about motivation, you do, 
not just want to just try things just for the sake of trying things. So that's where I would disagree. I think you need to have a deeper understanding and a purpose. And, you know, you kind of want to have that secret, you know, like in the case, you know, in, in the case of rocket internet, it doesn't seem like a secret, but, you know, no one at the time was willing to spend that much money in those markets and execute in such a way they did. Right. Uh, so in a sense, you kind of need to have some edge and some other deeper reasons. And I just don't do things just for the sake of trying, you know, think, think about it a little bit more. Um, so I can answer those two questions. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, since we're on the topic of culture, um, you've been in Malaysia for t close to 10 years now, right? Uh, five, five, six years. The five, rest of them okay. was, uh, yeah. yeah, the rest was in other Asian countries. Right. So as an American coming to Malaysia, what was your experience with the local culture? How did that change? How did that meet your expectations? Did you have to adjust your values within the company? What, what was your um, experience there? So this is actually very interesting, especially for this international audience. Um, I think what will happen is a lot of people who are more international coming to Malaysia, uh, they will find out it is very easy to adjust. Um, like many other countries, it's easy to live into an expat bubble. Uh, the best part is if you are part of the international language of English, everyone speaks English here, right? Uh, so it's not very hard to adjust to Malaysian culture as a foreigner, I would say. Uh, And it's a little bit unfair for me to speak to it because I had been visiting Malaysia a few times before I settled in. You know, I went there for vacation a few times. Uh, and then I, I my, when I started my rocket career, I worked there for about five, six months before I jumped to other countries. So when I kind of came back for five years, everything kind of just <laughs> makes sense. Um, I, I will say, though, you know, there's a lot of similar complaints. Um, maybe in certain aspects, things are too easygoing. Uh, you'll say you hear people say the same thing about Thailand, Indonesia, and Philippines in the workforce. Um, but that's just a matter of you know, uh, you know, if you don't like those elements in young people or culture building, then you have to kind of adjust for it. That's all. Uh, but you also, you should be aware of the mentality because you know being too insensitive to it also just uh, you know it, it shows you like you're not aware of what's going around you, and people then see you as an outsider. And that happened a lot in Rocket actually. They would hire MBA, European MBA people to manage people who've been working in industry for many years. And there was huge amounts of resentment and schisms that brought up to it. So in a sense, we're lucky that the post-Rocket, there's so much talent that's been trained and built up in these tech kind of startups. So they, they're, you know, you can have a pool of good managers who are locals. Um, but you know, think very carefully, you know, about if you bring your friends in from Europe or abroad or US or Latin America and how you place them with your locals, it will probably matter. Yeah. Thanks. Um, everyone else, any questions? Does anyone want to jump in? Yeah, don't be shy, please. I, I don't bite, you know. I think it's very early in the morning for some cell or late yes. at night. Yeah. Okay, then I'll maybe touch on the topic uh, you mentioned in, in several of the sessions. Um, fundraising was addressed. Um, when we spoke, you mentioned that um, your last venture in travel happened to be in travel. Um, you, you had somebody who was kind of had a vision of building up a small rocket internet um, and, and taking the company to big stages of growth. What was your experience with investor relations? Um, one, of, one of your guests mentioned how important it is um, to kind of Not raise too early, check who your investors are, um, find the right one for yeah. your company. What was your experience with that? Yeah, well, it's, it may seem like this, but like my, my, you know, if you look at my track record, my career seems like a series of mistakes. <laughs> so um, there's, there's a lot of learnings there. Uh, I, I had just 
So my so my last company to give some context was Jetspree. It's a travel marketplace where we use um, uh, basically frequent travelers to be personal shoppers. And this uh, angel investor I met wanted to build it out, and I was building it for three years for him. Prior to that, I had tried to bootstrap another uh, fashion dress rental company with a local entrepreneur in Malaysia. It didn't work out. So I kind of worked one year and invested money and lost money. So I kind of needed to get some money. So I kind of just picked up this job without thinking. I was very casual about how my next opportunity, which you know you should not be very casual with your opportunities. Like I said, you got to think a little bit harder. And my biggest problem with uh, investor relations in Jetspree was that there was no strong foundation. Um, I guess you guys are in a position where you guys hold all the equity. So you have a lot of more leeway to not make the same mistake I did. But you kind of want to think about that foundation in terms of the cap table and what it means uh, and how, how that will affect future fundraising. Uh, in my case, the, the angel investor had all the control and he wanted to give out equity as we went along, which was a terrible idea because your incentives are not aligned. Things don't become, you know, things are not sticky. You're not on the same page. When things get really hard, you know, even though you get paid a lot of money, you're just a hired gun at the end of the day, right? Uh, and you kind of want to think about that piece because incentives are everything, especially with fundraising, especially how things scale. You got to think about your VC partner. Are they predatory? Are they trying to get me to take a down round to get more control and then exit when the next round comes? Uh, are they really in my best interest? Are they good partners for me? Um, so I don't know. Did that answer your question? What was it again? <laughs> no, what, yeah, definitely. It was about picking picking VCs, picking investors, um, yeah. and, and kind of fostering that relationship along the way. Yeah, and I, it, I think it is a very important point to kind of look at what it, what is their long term motivation. Do they want to sell in the next round? Yeah, then I, they'll act very differently, obviously, than if yes. they're in it for the long run. I mean, it, I've heard from some of my friends working in Singapore for a few years now. Some investors just don't do due diligence, so it's possible to get funded. But at the same time, you know, you want them to be doing due diligence, and you want, equally want to be doing as much due diligence on them. Talk to all of their portfolio companies. Try and figure out. You know, did they do something shady? Uh, are they really, are they just a passive guy who just gives you money and adds no value? Or are they actually working for you? Some of the best feedback I got from angel investors are guys who are just constantly making connections, uh, giving feedback, or really working for you as a, as a partner in this, right? So your, your relationship matters. You got to do due diligence. You got to be careful who you pick uh, and just make sure you go deeper, think critically about it, right? Great, thanks. Um, back to the topic of Asia. Um, you've been there for a few years. You've started several ventures um, with different scenarios of, of corporate setup. Um, what makes the market attractive? What what convinced you to um, move to the region, stay in the region? Um, what differences did you experience? Um, what What's your recommendation for all of us who are coming from abroad um, to the region? Yeah, actually, a lot of my podcasts, uh, a lot of episodes actually cover some of these aspects. But um, for, for me, it was uh, more serendipitous. Um, I graduated at a time during the financial post-financial crisis. Of course, uh, equity markets were rallying at the time, and things were great after the, the big crash for a year. But um, uh, prospects didn't look that great back then. I just whimsic whimsically, literally just bought a plane ticket and left to Asia. Um, my long-term partner, of course, was from Asia, but she wasn't there at the time. She was still in the UK. So I just kind of went first to see what was going. I actually thought I was going to continue my financial investment career in Singapore. Um, and what ended up happening is it's just really good timing and good luck, right? So there's always like preparation and luck. Uh, preparation was that I started my own company in New York, an investment company. 
luck was that Rocket happened to be doing their global expansion. And someone from my alumni network was looking for contacts in Vietnam and they connected and saw my profile that I did some entrepreneurship work. And then I got connected to Rocket. So for Rocket, I was like, okay, well, I have nothing to do now. I, I'm Maybe uh, they, they say they'll give a lot of money to invest and build things. I'll try it for one year. Uh, I ended up staying for four years. <laughs> so um, it's just, you know, I got into a, a moving rocket and it kept snowballing and the ecosystem. And I, I found out I was better at building companies than, than trading and investing. And um, so for me, it was just, uh, I got lucky with the timing. Uh, and what have I learned is that uh, over the years, you can build valuable companies anywhere now, you know, with the past 15 years of what Silicon Valley has done and all the infrastructure and what Rocket has done, you can build very valuable companies from anywhere now. Um, and it's even more appealing for a lot of people to build it outside of place, you know, outside of San Francisco, outside of these kind of big cities. Uh, and the biggest thing for Southeast Asia is that it's not as, you know, there's, there are 600 million people. Yes, yada, yada, yada is big, but like, you know, everyone knows this, but if you've operated long enough, people know it's not as big as you think, right? It's not, America, it's not China, where things scale very, very nicely. Uh, you're going to have to really work at each market and each different pain points if you want to scale it, uh, you know, across the whole region. And which is why, like I said, if you're not cynical, you kind of really do believe that what Grab and SoftBank are doing, they have to do it because they have to build the ecosystem first. And there's no way to capture enough value on one vertical. Like rideshare unit economics, personally, uh, sure, it generates a lot of cash, but given their cost structure, it's not going to make a lot of sense. They need to go to other areas, which is why they focus on food and payments, right? So it's there are tier one cities, uh, but beyond that, it's not like tier two are big like China or America, uh, and it's harder to scale. And there's you know, you're talking about socioeconomic differences, you're talking about political differences, and it's not as easy and straightforward as you think. And I think that's a very big learning, especially you jumping to Singapore. A lot of Singapore companies you know, they find a good solution for Singapore, but, you know, no one has the same problems like all these Singaporeans, you know, like outside of Singapore. Uh, so you kind of want to be aware of, you know, your testing ground and what you're doing and how you're testing. And does it really apply beyond, you know, the current constraints you're facing? And there's a lot of lessons in the, you know, what I talked about kind of to tie back to how you could approach that, you know. Would you say when you're scaling in the region do, um, and you have a digital product like many of us have, do local ops matter? Or can you headquarter in Singapore and then, scale to neighboring countries from there with your team still in Singapore? I mean, I guess a good flip question would be like, how many companies do you know that have done that? Like how many are just based in Singapore without presence? Uh, I, I guess early, early on, Carousel kind of did that, but I think they quickly built their teams in each market after they, they kind of got some traction, right? Um, you, you're going to need some type of local presence uh, unless it's purely like a Facebook kind of play, right? Or... Um, unless like you really don't touch the physical at all, you know, but I think you, what people don't understand is like, if you're trying to do it in a fast time frame, you need a lot more money than you think. Um, so my latest episode is not released yet. Uh, but my friend Sicko, he did, he worked for Happy Fresh, which was, you know, a grab invested in. Uh, then he was also managing director for Lala Move for Malaysia. Uh, his point was that, you know, if you want to replicate Lala Move or Happy Fresh, you need to raise, you know, 5 million USD off the bat just for one market. That's just one market. And how many people here think they could raise 5 million USD today, right now from current investors with their current product and the current team? Uh, if you do, man, man, great. Like, uh, I don't think you need the accelerator then, right? So, uh, but uh, realistically speaking, you need a lot more money to have impact in a short time frame. If not, you're kind of looking like at the story, like go get, you know, you're going to be in for a long journey 
uh, figure out that pain points and you do need a presence in other markets and it's going to cost you if you really want to do it. Okay, we've got a really good question from Lucas that ties in nicely to this uh, topic. So um, when you are scaling, when you open offices in other countries and you, as in times like now, can can physically travel to meet the team, um, how do you maintain the culture? Um, how do you keep people or integrate new hires into the culture that might just see it as just a job um, and yeah. don't have that entrepreneurial passion because they're not founders, because they're not part of the founding team, the growth yeah. team? Yeah, this is an excellent question. Um, and this... I've heard this uh, form of this question many times, even before the uh, COVID pandemic, because it's a question of remote, essentially. You know, what, what you're asking, does remote as a, a, as a business model work? And uh, the short answer, yes, you know, it, it, it can work. And there are many successful companies that have built scale to billions of dollars of value that are remote. Um, so the, the question really should be, is like, how do you build, how do you, intentionally design your culture to be remote driven. And, you know, like, uh, to be honest, uh, prior to, with all my experiences, I, I had never engaged with the idea of remote. So I was very, I would say skeptical. Like I just didn't think I would build a company that way, but ever since I started podcasting, that's all I could think about, you know, um, uh, I don't have a very good answer to you because I have never built a very good remote company. Well, I guess what you want to be doing is looking for entrepreneurs in your network who are designed well, what I can tell you is you want to purposely think about how could you build a remote culture from this kind of way. And um, I've been working on some recent projects with other companies who are fully like, you know, because of the pandemic are remote. And um, it's, it's building, you need a lot of communication on video. And interesting enough, that also brings into a huge amount of fatigue. Uh, and people hating video calls, but I think the interaction is needed. Uh, in these kind of calls, in these projects, I notice people, you know, they, they, they have time to talk about their personal lives as well as a professional. Uh, you got to, I guess, you know, a good answer would be is you got to be genuinely interested in your people in a remote sense. And that's easier when you're in person because I can go grab a drink after work. We can talk about, oh, my boss was being a dick today. Or uh, we can talk about, oh, you know, this problem that we're both facing and can, you know, jam in person. Uh, and that's the kind of the benefit of in person and remote that's harder. So you got to think about how can you recreate those in-person experiences, but remote while genuinely being authentically interested in them as a person in their life. Right. And you only can do that for your direct reports probably. Right. So what you want to do is say the same thing that I'm saying to your direct reports and they have to do it to their reports. And essentially it has to be this ongoing thing where you are engaged in other people's lives and actually care about each other. So I think that's, what I would say. Yeah, I can confirm that from our experience, actually. Um, and, and what you mentioned last is really important, um, your direct reports. Um, while I think startups tend to promote flat hierarchies, um, which doesn't mean there's no hierarchies, and especially if you have remote teams, something we've noticed with our team in the Philippines is that local leadership and our relationship as, as HQ uh, with local leadership matters a lot. And then that kind of transcends through those different levels. And, and we have a super passionate team lead in the Philippines um, who's gone through tough times with us and understands our vision and mission and, and plans for growth. And, and having somebody locally who understands that um, can then kind of transcend that onto the local team. Mm. Definitely. And video calls to help, for sure. Yes. Um, yes. We've been practicing them yeah. long before COVID as, as a company that's been set up yeah. remotely. I guess a good question would be is like, how do you make it so people don't hate video calls? Like I, I talked to a lot of VCs and I talked to a lot of people just doing video calls while they're like, you know, I can't do this anymore, you know? So <laughs> maybe, maybe you could balance that out somehow too. Yeah. I think keeping, keeping the schedule um, very like 
keeping to your schedule with the video calls matters mm -hmm. a lot. Um, that's something we've noticed that not not having excessive video calls, not having one every day, unless it serves a certain purpose, um, mm -hmm. that definitely helps. That's a good point. Like in general, meetings are just often wasted. I, I have not, I, honestly, I have not figured out the formula of what is the right meeting cadence. And that really depends on your company and your culture. And if you even brought up this, you know, aspect in, but yeah, I think that's a very good point. You know, you should probably actively think about what is a meeting and how that actually adds value. If not, you just end up with people who are zoning out and you end up wasting time. I've done, I've done times where I've just completely canceled all meetings because I just found out like it's just not effective. And then you go too long without meetings. Like it's, it's something I haven't really perfected. And, uh, you know, if anyone has, you know, a good meeting structure, I would love to you know, hear feedback from that too. Something, something we're actually planning to try now. We've learned in um, an accelerator that we've run through is the um, concept of daily huddles. Um, so we can share mm -hmm. this in a couple of weeks. Um, we're, we're going to start with that now, nice. where you have um, a very short meeting. Um, it doesn't have to be daily for every team member. Um, it can be different huddles for different teams, um, but, but leadership should have one every day. Um, yeah. And then you really just have three topics that you speak about, which is what has been successful, what am I working on now, what are roadblocks that I'm facing? And yeah. every team member only has these um, three minutes with one minute for each topic. Yeah. And, and we'll see how that works. And I think going deeper to that is like, I would love to hear from all the entrepreneurs here is like, how do you keep the lowest of low employees engaged in the meeting to contribute value? Because you have this dynamic of introvert and extrovert. You have this dynamic of some guys just need to say too much. Some guys don't say enough, or some guys just say things that don't matter. And I, I found it very, you know, like in a small team setting, I found that that, often at times is that if I talk too much, man, so I realize like that's just useless. You know, <laughs> like you're just saying a lot of things in the meeting, but then the question, are people absorbing it? Does it matter at that point? So, you know, it's maybe a good topic for everyone to think about, or maybe someone could share their experiences from, from their end of like, how do you really make a meeting for all people involved productive? Would someone like to share on this, uh, your experience in your startup? Lucas, I think you guys, well, how, how, how have you been dealing with this? Um, can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah, okay. I think you can. I mean, look, for us, it's, um, I mean, perhaps in broader terms, it has been quite a challenge with COVID. You know, we also had to scale back our offices uh, in Germany, just because there was no business in the exhibition industry, which meant we also lost some of those leader personalities uh, in those markets because there's no business for us there now, um, which has, you know, aggravated the whole situation a bit. Uh, we can't even, you know, from our um, Hong Kong uh, center, we can't go to our Shenzhen center anymore, which used to be a daily trip and we used to do it every week for like two days. And that's not possible anymore because the border is closed. So there, had, there have been quite a few challenges. I think, you know, having some of those agile structures and also stuff that you talked about, Kevin, where it's where, where there's quite a clear process about um, how stuff is done. You know, the little things that otherwise get discussed on the side and somehow fall into place because you are around each other. You know, having a process mm -hmm. to make sure that those little things that are so vital to get the company going are, you know, somehow taken care of. Um, are you know being captured by some process or someone somewhere? I think this is really important. Well, has shown to be really important for us, and we have set in place a few you know such structures that really spell out you know what do we really need to talk about, 
um, you know, w w these once a week and what don't we have to talk about? Um, so I think that's a, an additional additional uh, kind of knowledge nugget that I want to share. Um, I think, yeah, otherwise I can confirm just taking time to talk personally with people is very important also at a co-founder level, for example, because otherwise it very quickly just becomes, you know, there's the risk, oh, we're on a video call, we want to be timed, let's just do it it quickly can become transactional, which is another thing that you really want to avoid as, as you guys already pointed out. Um, yeah, I think these are some, some thoughts from my side. Thanks Lucas for sharing this. Um, very good points. Um, it, it's interesting actually that rocket nails processes really well. Um, and all the startups that we invested in from rocket, they have very clear reporting processes and structures, standard operating procedures. And, and one of our ventures scaled from uh, at the high point, they won 43 countries. Um, with boots on the ground in 43 countries. And with that magnitude, it obviously is incredibly important that you have clear guidelines of who reports to whom um, and regular schedules for these reports. Okay, I think we're slowly nearing the end of the session. Um, if there's no more urgent questions um, now, um, I'll pass back to Katrin. Um, Alex, thank you so much um, for sharing all these really valuable insights with us both from your personal experience and, and the really interesting entrepreneurs you've interviewed. Okay. Um, we'll definitely be listening in to the podcast and looking forward to the next awesome. episode. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, Kevin. Um, yeah, perfect. Uh, Alex, is it possible um, for us to also share a slide deck to, to the team so that they can uh, reread the, the topics? I mean, we have recorded the session as well, but if there's anything sure. that they wanted to. Definitely. I'll send you the latest uh, update. Sure. Perfect. Um, yeah, I think one one thing that I wanted to add on with with all these meetings and the fatigue that you um, mentioned on on top of the the virtual um, yeah kind of uh, logistics that you have to pull through at the moment um, and and running this program virtually is as well. Um, I think we have just turned into um, or turning our one-hour meetings into 45-minute meetings because um, people have just lots and lots and lots of back-to-backs. Um, and you have to give them these kind of 10 to 15 minutes of leeway to just decompress and prepare themselves for the next one. Um, I think that was a very important um, learning to, to put into place um, for a lot of my team members um, to get to that shorter team's because, yeah, the travel time is just not there anymore. Mm, <laughs> you don't true, have to true. travel from meeting to meeting. Yeah. Cool. Maybe that's just one one, one little uh, one for me. Um, thank you so much, Alex. I think it was very valuable. Lots and lots of things to learn. Um, and lots of things, I think, to revisit. Um, there was a, a, a lot of uh, points that you have brought up that you have to kind of reshuffle in your head mm. and, and bring back in. So, so um, thank you so much. And, yeah, we we, we will... Stay in touch, <laughs> for yes, sure. Definitely. Thank, thank you for the time, everyone, and uh, tune in. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good hey, weekend. <laughs> hey, listeners. Thank you for listening to another episode of EOA. I want to give a big shout-out to Kevin and Katrine for helping organize and for asking insightful questions. 
Of course, this was under the Singapore Tourism Board as well. So if you are looking to expand or launch into Singapore or the region, feel free to look up their program for Cohort 4 in the future. A key note is that you do not need to be a company focused on travel or tourism as they widely accept many types of companies across many industries in tech. And of course, a shout out to Found8 as they've invited me to a few different programs and mentorship sessions across other various accelerators as well. If you guys enjoyed this content, please rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice and share the episode to friends and family on social media. Feel free to leave any comments or feedback on entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcasts. See you guys back here for next week's episode.